Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Belief in God, heaven, or an afterlife is a personal journey for people the world over. In the United States, a 2016 Gallup poll revealed 89% of Americans answered affirmative when asked if they believe in God. 71% answered yes to believing in heaven. The idea of an afterlife is so ingrained in so much of American religious history, and it's spilled over into literature and pop culture throughout the centuries. Books such as The Gates Ajar, Heaven is Real, and 90 Minutes in Heaven are a few examples of ways that these types of texts have reached large audiences and achieved great acclaim. Dr. Brooke Walensky-Landford studies utopias, origin stories, heaven, and is the author of Paradise Lust, Searching for the Garden of Eden, and her work focuses on studying these topics. A former editor-in-chief of the online magazine of religion, culture, and politics, Killing the Buddha, Dr. Walensky Lanford also received her PhD in American Religion from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and her MFA in nonfiction writing from Columbia. In this episode, we discuss her years of work in public scholarship, her fascination with heaven narratives, and her work with sacred rights. You can follow Dr. Walensky Lanford on Twitter at twitter.com slash modmyth, that's M-O-D-M-Y-T-H. And you can follow me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Brooke Walensky Lanford. Thank you so much for listening. Dr. Brooke Walensky-Lanford, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you. It's great to be here. I am so delighted to have you on the show for my ongoing Sacred Rights 2021 cohort series. I'm wondering if you can just start off by introducing yourself a little bit to the audience, however you see fit. Sure. I'm a historian of religion, literature, and politics in the 19th and 20th century U.S. I'm also the author of a book on people who search for the Garden of Eden on Earth, and a former managing editor of the literary website, Killing the Buddha. What is your book called again? My book is called Paradise Lust, Searching for the Garden of Eden. I love that. It's the best title. 
I was, uh, we'll, we'll chat about that book a yeah. little bit too, um, here throughout the conversation, but you know, Brooke, I'm, you're on this show here with me and I'm really excited to learn about these diverse areas of expertise that you have. And I always love hearing the backstory behind why people care about the things that they care about and the paths they took through their lives to become experts in the areas that they work within. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your academic journey, some of your professional experiences that contribute to your expertise. Um, so I'm wondering if you can just kind of tell me a little bit about your path through academia and some, a little bit about some professional things that led you to where you are today. Yeah, um, it's been it's been a kind of circuitous path, but um, I would say that my interest in studying religion uh, studied, started in college, and it actually really surprised um, surprised my my parents and surprised mm. kind of everybody who knew me um, because I did not grow up with any uh, formal religious background whatsoever. In fact, both of my parents had specifically left their own uh, religious background behind and and gone off to the coast of Maine to kind of live a little bit intentionally. Um, mm. so they were a little taken aback that I wanted to study organized religion. Mm. They were worried um, when I was a religion major at, at Wesleyan uh, back in my undergraduate days. There, were, there was a lot of like, do you want to become a priest? And I was right. Like, no, no, it's, it's different. Um, and it sort of started clicking together for me. Um, actually, my freshman year of college, I remember taking like an intro freshman seminar called religion and story. Mm. And I was like, huh, like I always thought I was going to be an English major. I was, you know, writer, um, creative writing was my thing. And I didn't put those things together, religion and story until that class, um, which was super influential. And I think actually I'm really still just kind of working on that relationship. Uh, what's the relationship between religion and story? How is religion a way that we tell ourselves and each other's stories. Mm. How does how does the notion of narrative and story inspire you generally? Because I feel I get the impression from reading your work that just the concept of narrative and storytelling is is deeply ingrained and important in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for noticing that. I'm You're really, welcome. really into stories and narrative. Yeah. Like, really. Um, yeah, I, I do think about history uh, as as storytelling, which is, you know, possibly a controversial opinion in, in some uh, quarters uh, because we're suspicious of those big, you know, grand narratives in, in academia. That's, that's how they, they train us to be. But uh, I came from, I came from the storytelling first. So that's still mm. my, my basic uh, instinct. And I think that that's uh, a great way to relate to people. I think we think in story form. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I was talking to one of my friends of mine who's an English teacher with me several years ago to school in Missouri, and we were talking about our jobs and just how it's kind of surreal that we make a living talking about stories with teenagers. That's really the crux of what we do. And we both had this moment where we were like, wow, how lucky are we? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what we do. That's amazing. It's a great gig. I love it. Well, I love that you appreciate the narrative as well. Um, so where did you go from those undergraduate years? Like wh when you graduated from that, where did you go next? Oh my goodness. Uh, it was so circuitous. I was a theater and religion major. So I directed plays a lot in college and I was Wonderful. also very, very into that form of storytelling. So that's what I pursued for a little while after college um, until it became 
clear that I was not good in the struggling theater scene. <laughs> and I needed a bit, uh, something more concrete. Um, ended up working in publishing for a while and then pursuing my, my MFA because, again, I was always trying to get closer to writing and to storytelling. Uh, and that was the way that I was able to, to really invest and focus on the craft of telling stories, especially telling true stories. I was a nonfiction uh, MFA program. Yeah, you you have a vast body of published works at this point. Uh, and I'm wondering about how Columbia and the MFA program and nonfiction there jumped off for you for the religion aspect. Like, did you make those connections between religion and nonfiction writing at Columbia? Yes, I did. So yeah, the MFA at Columbia was a really an amazing, amazing experience that still influences a lot of what I do today. Uh, I didn't go into the program thinking, oh, I have to write about religion. But um, as I developed sort of the, the longer project that they want you to do, um, a thesis, a nonfiction thesis, the topic that, that my uh, professors were most excited about and that I got really invested in was the search for the Garden of Eden. And that started for me from actually like a family history thing. Um, I heard that my great uncle was, uh, who I had never met, uh, was in the 1950s searching for the Garden of Eden. And I thought, that's really weird. Interesting. My family, like they're all scientists, you know, they're like doctors, they're like Upper East Side waspy types. And yeah. I really thought, you know, if you're searching for the Garden of Eden, you got to be like a serious, like fundamentalist, literalist believer in the Bible, which I did not think my, my family was about. So it started with that kind of curiosity, right? Figuring out what that story was about. And it sent me like, I mean, Columbia is amazing. I spent a lot of time in the deep archives trying to figure out, you know, where he might have thought it was um, and ended up getting derailed by these fabulous other stories of other people who looked for the Garden of Eden since I started in like the mid 19th century all the way through today. And that's what developed into my book, uh, Paradise Lust, developed out of that MFA research. Okay, so when you got out of your MFA program, is that when you kind of got into the world of sort of like, like, like the, the art, the journal killing the Buddha. Is that where you went from there with the MFA? Yeah, that's a major part of, of where I went. I was still living in New York city and, you know, trying to find work as a freelance writer. Um, so that's where a lot of the, the short pieces that, that I've written that you can, you know, see on my website for places like religion dispatches, religion and politics that came out of that period of just trying to like write a lot and try out a lot of new, new venues. I ended up stumbling upon killing the Buddha, which is kind of how everybody arrives at killing the Buddha. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, it's this great website. If you don't know it, it's a great website that's been around since 2000. It was founded by Jeff Charlotte and Peter Manso, who have both gone on to do amazing, illustrious amazing. things. Just incredible. So it's, it's um, been handed and passed, passed through a number of editors since then. I ended up uh, being the the main editor for that from 2011 to 2018. Gotcha. And it's I really see. a community. It's a great community to be part it of. It really is. And I stumbled across Killing the Buddha because of Kelly Baker, who is associated yeah. with sacred rights as well. And a piece that she wrote about apocalypse stories and that she had put out in Killing the Buddha. And so that's how I stumbled across it is because I like her work so much. That's really cool. Um, what's it like doing that editing work? I mean, is was that a fulfilling profession for you? Yeah, it was really fulfilling. I enjoyed it. And that's how I met a lot of wonderful people, including Kelly um, and some other folks who are now part of my, my sacred rights circle, which is exciting. 
I love it. Yeah. What uh what was the path like to deciding to pursue that PhD at University of North Carolina? Because, you know, going from New York City to North Carolina for a PhD, I mean, that's a big move. There's a lot of life transitions, a lot of, you know, jarring experiences, most likely. And I'm wondering about the process of making that happen because that's a big deal. Yeah, that was a big, that was a big move. I'm still kind of uh surprised at that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my husband and I moved down here to Chapel Hill in 2015 when I started the PhD in uh, religion in the Americas at UNC. And that was really coming out of a, I was doing all this freelance work. I was editing Killing the Buddha. I had this book that had come out a couple of years before, and I was feeling like I was kind of all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a hazard of, of doing freelance and independent work. It's wonderful, but uh, you can feel very scattered scattered i feel like that right now i know exactly what you mean (laughs) yeah i still kind of feel like that yeah you know maybe that doesn't go away but the idea of a phd was to kind of synthesize and bring all those interests together you know i was doing writing on my own i was doing teaching on my own i was doing research on my own i was like where do all these things live together and how can i uh, do that in sort of one place how did you land on the areas of emphasis that you did with regards to pursuing your phd program yeah, I am, since uh, studying where people look for the Garden of Eden, I remain fascinated by uh, that combination of utopia and origin story, mm-hmm. right? So like, what are people looking for when they're looking for the Garden of Eden? Are they looking for where we came from? Are they looking for some kind of ancestry? Uh, or are they looking for like a perfect place that we can go to in the future? Those kinds of stories continue to fascinate me. Um, and I also became interested in ideas of religious liberalism and spirituality and how those things interconnect, which is a lot of what I started out studying. Did you go to UNC like very, for a very particular reason? Were there like specific people that you were interested in working with? Not in the traditional way. I really liked the whole department. Uh, that was something I liked about UNC was that there was a, a great sort of um, community or a um, almost like a board or a council of amazing people as opposed to like the one person. Um, So my advisor, Todd Ochoa is, is wonderful. He's an anthropologist of religion that works in Cuba. So something totally different from, from what I do, but just a really great um, person who, who helped me through the program in a lot of ways. I also worked with Randall Stiers, uh, a bunch and Brandon Bain, um, and some great people from outside the religion department. There's a great uh, historian of religion, Molly Worthen, who teaches there, um, Michelle Robinson in American Studies. Those were my committee members, and it was like a lovely, a lovely bunch of people to get to work with. Fantastic. Well, you sent me a piece of writing that you did for your dissertation at UNC, uh, and the piece that you sent me is called A New Heaven and a New Earth, which is such an evocative title. And I love it. And I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the, the meaning of the work, the title and the origin behind this title, because it's, it's just, it, it elicits so many visions for me. Ooh, I'm excited that it elicits visions for you. It's, yes. uh, it's the introduction to my dissertation. And I, I picked that phrase because I wanted to right away start parallel, excuse me, start paralleling heaven and earth, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's, I'm going to mess this up, but I believe it's a, it's a biblical, it is definitely a biblical quote. I want to say revelation. Um, it's a, it's a prophecy, right? We're going to have this new heaven and new earth in the future. Um, so it's got, it's got some prophetic aspects to it. It's got some parallel heaven and earth. 
Um, and I wanted to kind of throw that out there to start with um, as I started really telling the story of, of this book that is my dissertation. Wonderful. I'm curious about the current state of belief in heaven in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, are there any current polling about belief in heaven in general in our society that people out there may not know? Yeah, the, the recent, it's not super recent anymore, but the 2014 Pew Religious Landscape Study uh, showed, I believe it was close to 75% of people surveyed have some belief in heaven and hell. And it was very broadly construed, you know, heaven as a place, kind of like the good place. Heaven is like the good place you go to be rewarded. Hell is the bad place that you, you go to be punished. And along those very broad lines, uh, many, many Americans are, are happy to believe that sort of religious affiliation aside, like those numbers don't necessarily overlap. They get higher for people who self-identify as, as Christian or Jewish or, or Muslim or any other faith tradition. But uh, they're also sort of like really broadly applicable in American society, which you can see in all kinds of pop culture, um, whether it's like religious or not. We talk a lot about heaven. Wonderful. Well, what we're doing here is I, I think you may notice that I'm, I'm tying this back to your original interest in narrative and story, right? So this, this thread of that original undergraduate class that you took that got you interested in this really sparked off a lifelong curiosity in these narratives that we tell ourselves throughout history, hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah. I love it. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about the structure of the dissertation and kind of where the, where the story takes you throughout the text. Yeah, so I was interested in how people tell the story of heaven, um, and actually through one of my UNC mentors, Randall Stiers, I was I was a TA for his great undergraduate class on heaven and hell. So another undergraduate class that inspired me, um, where we looked at those ideas historically and what they what they contained and how they um, showed development of different theological ideas, and so I started looking at heaven and hell uh, in a different way. And actually, one of the texts that we talked about as a primary source in that class is an 1868 novel called The Gates Ajar, which ended up being the central text that I looked at in my dissertation. I was really fascinated by it immediately. It's this novel that is described as the second best-selling novel of the 19th century after Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of weird because, you know, everybody's heard of Uncle Tom's Cabin and right. not that many people have heard of The Gates Ajar, right? So like, are they really, I don't know if they're really on the same plane, but it just tells you how widely known the book was in the late 19th century. Everybody would have known this, this book yeah. by Elizabeth Stewart Phelps is, is the author. Who is Elizabeth Stewart Phelps? Tell me a little bit about this person. She was like the daughter and granddaughter of Calvinist theologians uh, at Andover. So she had like this uh, deep religious knowledge and training, but could not herself go and become ordained to sort of join the family business because she was a woman and she became a writer instead and a very broadly popular writer, sort of like uh, in the like sentimental slash moralizing tradition of the late 19th century. Um, she ended up writing like something like 70 books and The Gates wow. Ajar was her first her first book, which she wrote when she was in her early 20s, I want to say, immediately after the Civil War. Yeah. My goodness. Uh, well, so I'm wondering, um, so this novel, as you mentioned, is seems to be largely 
overlooked slash forgotten today. I had never personally heard of it ever. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm wondering a little bit about the, what Phelps is doing with the novel. Like what is the story about that captured your attention so much? Yeah. It's really like a grief novel. Um, it's written in the form of a diary of a young woman whose brother has died in the civil war. And she is back, you know, home alone in a small New England town, trying to sort of reconcile herself to his death and feeling very alone in that. Um, you know, she goes to church and tries to find comfort at church. And her ministers all tell her, oh, don't worry about it. You know, just be resigned to his death. He's, he's fine. And she's like, but I, I you know, I can't. Like, I still have this, this relationship with my brother that I need to extend beyond his death. I need to have, not be alone. Um, and so she finds through the fortuitous visit of her aunt Winifred, who comes to town, uh, she finds a different way of looking at death and the beyond and heaven and the continuity of those family relationships. So she gradually, um, you know, each diary entry is her gradually becoming more and more convinced by this idea of heaven that aunt Winifred brings to her, which I, I call the accessible heaven. It's the heaven where the pearly gates are, are open. And it's familiar also from people who, who think about spiritualism, right? It's a heaven where you can kind of go back and forth. You know, you can communicate with your, your dead loved ones there. Um, and once you get there, you can still be part of a family on the other side, right? So it's really all about continuity and connection and family. Wonderful. What is the gates ajar? Just that phrase what does that mean in the context of of the book, but also your work? Yeah, it became a really huge thing that I became obsessed with. Um, the gates ajar, as in the pearly gates to heaven, being left ajar, as in slightly open, not all the way open, but a little bit, right? So if you just think about that image, there's a whole lot of like theological questions you can ask about that, right? Like. Um, how open are they to who? Who left them open? Was there a, you know, a guardian that sort of like shirked their duty and left them open? Um, why do we need gates at all if they're going to be ajar? <laughs> mm -hmm. You can start to ask all kinds of things. But the image itself really became like a visual trope in pop culture of the 19th century coming out of the novel. So the novel has that title but it doesn't talk a lot about that actual image, but that's what people took from the novel and made into their own thing. So they started to be started to be featured in poems and in songs and in flower arrangements, which were a very big deal in that time period. You can still, if you go on like FDD florist and search for gates ajar, they have like a, um, a floral gate. It's like an arched gate with two, uh, two doors that are like, uh, you know, slight frozen, slightly open and made of flowers. Like that's the trope. Uh, and it's still, it's still sort of around. What are some of the original, uh, you know, the original sources that you're mentioning? Like, are there any examples from like the 1800s? Cause I'm wondering how long this trope exists for. And like, what are some common things that people may know about that exist because of this gates ajar trope? Yeah, I've actually seen just uh, in driving around, like passing by old cemeteries, you sometimes see the symbol on gravestones. Mm. Um, you see like the sculpture of the gates, which again are like frozen partway open, which is kind of weird. 
There's a sculpture of the Gates Ajar uh, made in topiary that is in St. Paul, Minnesota, and you can still go and visit it. Um, you can't open the gates. You can only like stick your head through like yeah, a little yeah. thing. Um, so it is still kind of, still kind of out there. Um, and I also think like, it's not maybe a direct connection, but every time I like flip through like the New Yorker magazine or like see an episode of the Simpsons where like someone's waiting in line for heaven. And yeah. Have, like St. Peter there with the book. And like, it's just like the setting for so many, you know, great jokes. I feel like that heaven is kind of the, the, you know, not to say that heaven is supposed to be funny, but um, that's the kind of open heaven that we're still kind of kicking around. I think. I love it. Well, you talked earlier about the gates are ajar. How far are they ajar? Yeah. To whom are they ajar? And this is another thing that you go into a little bit more within the work. So you use a few key terms that I want to discuss about heaven that you write about. And that's the accessible heaven, the gates ajar heaven, modern heaven. And I'm wondering if you can tease apart these terms of accessible and modern, because these terms are capturing my attention. I want to know mm -hmm. more. Yeah, I started out with modern, and that's a phrase that I'm borrowing from um, McDaniel and Lang's book, Heaven and History, which is a really great um, overall history of images of heaven, you know, going back to uh, the Renaissance and beyond. So they talk about the modern heaven coming in in the late 19th century, mostly related to Swedenborg and sort of romanticism and the opening up of heaven that way. Um, but their their thesis is that the modern heaven kind of like went away at a certain point um, in the early 20th century, maybe. It became like not so fashionable to have an open heaven. We wanted to like close heaven back up again. Um, and I was kind of like not totally agreeing with that that trajectory and found, like I was just saying, found the idea of heaven being open still going you know, today and still continuing past the point where they had said it went away. So I wanted to take it out of that historic, you know, stop using the term modern because that, uh, you know, refers to a period in time. And I started thinking about it just as accessible. What does that mean? Um, and then as I got into telling the story of the Gates Ajar and how it is and is not accessible, especially for Black Americans, that's the, the period of time and reconstruction that I'm dealing with. Uh, in the thesis, uh, in the dissertation, then I started thinking about it as just the gates ajar heaven. Right? Mm -hmm. It's like it is still sort of modern and sort of accessible, but uh, there's a lot of gray area there that I really got into exploring. Mm. I want to go into more about that. The history of tying segregation to heavenly admission really says a lot about the ways the country has existed and in my view, blatantly hypocritical ways. Yeah. So I know that you are interested in utopia stories, and I'm wondering if this notion of reducing prejudice, racism, segregation in the afterlife connects to, or has any commentary on like society today that we're living in now. Yeah. Society today. I mean, absolutely here again, I kept coming back to this idea of heaven and earth being parallel, right? Mm -hmm. So every story we ever tell about heaven, every description, what does heaven look like? Who gets to go there? That's all a story about the, the contemporary atmosphere on earth as we're writing it, right? Which is the same thing as a utopia in a, in a way, right? Utopias always describe a perfect version 
of, of uh, society that speaks to something that's like lacking today, right? Um, and the same thing was true with 19th century descriptions of heaven. They, um, they really have this tension there between like, you know, we want heaven to look like earth. We want to be able to continue our family relationships. We want things to be like all open and free flowing. On the other hand, there was this like failure of imagination in a lot of these popular culture pieces, a failure to imagine heaven having black and white people living together. Like mm-hmm. it was still a segregated heaven um, for a very, very long time and sort of like awkward um, possible attempts to make heaven look like earth in a more um, racially integrated way um, in the same way that the country was working through the similar issues after the civil war through reconstruction, through this kind of like long reconstruction era um, where you have like progress and then uh, violence and redemption and backlash. And then a little bit more progress So this like long struggle was what I was tracing through different um, dramatic and visual and cultural references to heaven, especially the gates ajar. I really like the imagery that you present in the book too about heavenly admission being granted by the size of halo, not skin color. And then what lessons that has to teach us about how we treat each other while we're actually alive. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. That phrase, the size, you should be, you know, judged in heaven by the size of your halo is something I borrow from a, um, a poet, or poet and newspaper editor, an all-around interesting guy named P.D. East, mm. who I, I opened the introduction to my dissertation with, with a little story he wrote about just how is kind of sarcastic, like making fun of how ridiculous it was to say that heaven could possibly be segregated. It's heaven. <laughs> yeah. It should be. It should be perfect, and there yeah. should not be any of this. Um, so yeah, I thought about that. I like that phrase, the size of halo. Um, you know, some of us have bigger halos than others, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really the only thing, you know, that shouldn't matter. So you have some accessibility categories that I'm wondering about. So you have four categories, spatial, temporal, personal, and moral. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about these accessibility to heaven categories that you use to sort of frame the work. Yeah, those are, are four ways I kind of found of describing the ways in which this new modern accessible gates ajar heaven actually worked, right? What does it mean to say heaven is parallel to earth or heaven is open? Um, In spatial terms, there's this idea that heaven is literally um, above earth, like spatially above earth so that um, there's, when you die, you, you rise to heaven, right? As opposed to heaven being someplace you get to like after earth, right? Um, it's always there. It's always above us. That's the spatial part. Okay. Temporal, um, temporal means that we're existing in the same earth, earth and heaven existing in the same timeline, basically, um, which is a theological thing, right? It's not a place that you have to wait for some kind of apocalyptic event to then Mm -hmm. get to, um, heaven is, is available now personally goes back to those, those personal relationships I was talking about in the novel, the woman wants to continue that relationship with her brother. And in order to do that, you have to still be the same person that you were on earth when you die and go to heaven, right? So your personality, your psychology, your family relationships, your hobbies, even 
um, what you do all day, what you like to talk about, all that gets carried over into heaven in this, in this vision, as opposed to being, you know, sort of wiped clear and angelic and, you know, walking around in robes kind of thing. You're still you in heaven. Um, and then the last one, the moral one is the sort of like, how big is your halo? Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. How, how good are you uh, to, to get in? I love it. Well, um, I'm wondering a little bit more. I think that the the opening lines of the chapter frame the gates of heaven as a civil rights battleground. And then you cite somebody named Joyce Brown's work called When the Klansman Gets to Heaven, which is a poem from 1964 and how Klansmen will likely face no punishment at the gates of heaven. A, a powerful, powerful work that I had never been exposed to. And I'm wondering about your discovery of this piece, your selection of using this in your work, because it really, I had to read it through a couple of times just to kind of take in the power of what was happening here, because it has so many underlying unfortunate things that that are commentary with regards to our country. And I was wondering if you can say a little bit more about that. Yeah. First of all, I have to credit uh, two of uh, the faculty members at UNC for helping me find this work. Uh, Brandon Bain, one of my advisors, and Dr. William Sturkey, who's a historian here at UNC, actually uncovered this in his own research on the freedom schools of the 1960s and knew that I was interested in heaven narratives and, and sent me this poem. And I was like, oh my God, this is this amazing. Is amazing. Um, so one of those amazing fortuitous uh, discoveries Joyce Brown was a 16-year-old civil rights activist in Mississippi and wrote this poem for a like a journal that was published by the Freedom School and, and sort of read a little bit larger, but it hasn't been like published or collected really anywhere outside of that. And it, it really should be because it's amazing. She writes this poem, first of all, in dialect, which is a really interesting choice, uh, describing what it would be like if a sort of Klansman, uh, grand wizard type person tried to like make their case to get into heaven. How would that go? Um, and then what would happen if such a person actually got into heaven where she ha- she imagines that there are in fact um, many black people, whole black communities in heaven uh, living in this, this sort of like, um, you know, singing songs and hanging around it's like this beautiful idea of of what happens when you get through to heaven the problem is that saint peter um you know who's also sort of figured as like a, a white authority figure is is not going to see through the clansman's veneer of like oh i'm a good upstanding member of society uh you know let me into heaven um she, the, the poet, sees through that because uh, she's been attacked by, by the Klan and she knows this person is not who they say they are, but she mm-hmm. also knows that St. Peter is going to let him in anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's the like, really, that's the part that always gets me. This, it's this like the poem. sick joke. Yeah. It's so dark. Yeah. Yeah. And then once he's in, it's like, well, heaven is, heaven is no good anymore. Right. Because it, it just sort of like, basically the, the duplicity of that or the um, just the the injustice of that makes the whole enterprise of heaven kind of kind of worthless, right? Mm. Um, uh, wow. So it's yeah, it's really 
it's really a sad but amazing um, poem. I'm I'm so glad that people have found these overlooked works because honestly, that was one of my favorite things I've read in a long time. And, and I'm now to learn that she was 16 when she wrote it. It just is utterly mind blowing the way that young people can, can just pluck these truths of the world and throw them back at you in an unfiltered way that really just says a lot about where we are as a society. Like that's why it's one of my favorite things about being a high school teacher is what students throw back at you now mm-hmm. and then. And it just reminds me of that, you know? Oh boy. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about some other stuff. How does this, tr- how does this, uh, how is this still around today? Like, I know that there are books out there like heaven is real 90 minutes in heaven. And like, is there a pathway for extending this research into works that are coming out like in the here and now for folks who do work like yourself? I think so. I was originally going to try to go all the way to the 2010s when Heaven is for Real came out in my dissertation. And my advisors very wisely advised me not to try to cover all that ground. Um, but that is that was like a, a, a really key starting point for me in thinking about getting interested in these Heaven narratives is that they're still around and they're still doing a lot of rhetorical and religious work um, how open again are these heavens and like, who are they speaking to? I think are questions that, yeah, you can continue to ask. Is that why you think that, is that a reason why you think that people who aren't in the field of religious studies should care about like the work that you do? Like, is that a main reason? Cause these things are still really happening. And is that kind of like making the argument for why the work that you're doing is still so relevant in the here and now? I mean, I hope so. I'd like to think it's still relevant in the here and now. I think you know, some of the things that either I might consider expanding on, or I would love to be in conversation with other people thinking about are um, how do those, those pieces of culture that we sort of overlook, uh, like the Gates of Jar was overlooked as like serious literature, right? In the same way that 90 Minutes in Heaven is sort of like, well, you know, it's a, it's a pop thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what are like the really serious things that these pieces of culture can tell us? Um, and I think that that's like a question that can apply all over the place. Um, and I also think that um, the, the, the period of time that I was looking at between the Civil War and basically World War I is like a very highly studied period in terms of developing ideas of race and racialization and the, the uh, ending up in segregation and Jim Crow, right? But there's a lot of ways to carry that story also forward in time beyond Jim Crow and through the civil rights movement where Joyce Brown is writing. Um, to sort of follow the story of race as a uh, as a visual and as a requirement for entry in heaven, that continues as well. So, Brooke, something I'm really curious about is uh, your involvement with sacred rights, because you have such a powerful amount of experiences already before you ever joined this uh, this this public scholarship cohort of of researchers. And I'm wondering how your experience has been so far, because you already have such a a tremendous amount of public scholarship available. So I'm curious about your perspective, because I think that your experience might differ from a lot of your cohort fellow members, right? 
So I'm wondering how you are benefiting, growing, how you can feel your skill sets developing still to this day. Tell me about this experience for you because you have a little bit of different story than I think a lot of other people in the cohort do. Yeah, um, I think that I, in a way I kind of did this this backward or, or inside out, right? Where I did the, the public scholarship, the writing for the public about religion first, and then I went back to get my PhD, whereas you know many people do that in the opposite way. Mm -hmm. So I did have a lot of experience writing for non-academic audiences. And those are conversations that I'm really still invested in. What I love about sacred rights is exactly the people that it brings together, right? So I have experience with killing the Buddha or with religion dispatches. And those are experiences I can share with people who are just kind of discovering those sites or trying to figure out how their work can speak to different publics. And in turn, I, I learn a lot from, from those scholars who are figuring it out um, and really taking that idea of putting research in front of the public in a really smart way, um, taking that idea seriously. Because it's one of those things that like, like all forms of writing, academic writing, journalistic writing, can be very isolating. And I think we, we think a lot about writers in their like little garrets by themselves, like creating inspiration and ideas. But like, actually, once you get down to it, what's really happening is happening in community with other people. Mm. Um, and that's what's great about sacred rights is you get to support each other in that work. By hearing all these other cohort members talk about their own work to you, do you almost feel like you are seeing new ways of being a supporting editor for people like that in the future? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And going through the PhD process, as I did, uh, is making me see the kinds of questions that scholars are asking uh, and the kind of things that they're thinking about really, really differently than I would have before. What is your future like? Some of your goals within scholarship for the general public? I'm wondering what your goals are for moving forward. Yeah, I'm just about to start a postdoc position at the University of Virginia's Department of Religious Studies. I'm going to be working on their religion and democracy project, among other things there. And I think it's going to be a great place for exactly this kind of questioning. Um, they have a lot of different projects that involve religion and the public, religion and journalism, religion and politics. And they're always kind of negotiating those conversations. So I'm really hoping to be part of that, producing scholarship for that, training graduate students to do the kind of public facing work that, that I'm excited about and still invested in. Mm, wonderful. Well, Dr. Brooke Walensky-Lanford, I am so delighted learning about your work and your slightly different path that you've taken to get to sacred rights. I think that it's really cool the way that even though you came in with such a tremendous amount of public scholarship experience, that you still were finding new avenues and ways to grow yourself. I mean, that's just so cool to me. And I'm wondering if you can tell the listeners out there where they can find you if they would like to follow you and your past, present, and future works. Yeah, thank you so much, Greg. It's been really, it's been really great to talk to you. Um, my, you can find out more about me and my past work online at my website, which is brookwilenskylanford.com. The whole thing with the hyphen and everything. Gotcha. And I'm also on Twitter more and more these days. My Twitter handle is modmyth, M-O-D-M-Y-T-H. Fabulous. Well, Dr. Brooke Walensky-Lanford, thank you so much for being here. This has been such a fantastic hour for me. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. 